Paul was trying to let everybody understand is if you're going to be born again, it's going to be grace through faith in the completed work of what Jesus Christ did on your behalf. James would fully and completely 100% agree with that truth. But what he would do is he would add this caveat. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith alone. But understand that if you are truly saved, if you've truly received the free gift of eternal life in faith, then it will be clear by how you live your life. In other words, if God saved you, he's also changed you. Anybody who is radically saved is going to be radically changed as well. And so this is where he comes about. And this is where he ultimately uh, teaches. So he would agree with everything that Paul says, but he would add that caveat. Now this morning, as you can see, we're going to be taking of the Lord's Supper. Last week, we ran out of time to be able to observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And let me make sure I clarify something. The reason we were doing that is we were just being led by the Spirit. We're allowing people to be able to come and, and, and really be able to share their hearts for the testimonies of that church. How many of you were here last week? Wasn't that a blessing to be able to hear what God was doing in their hearts? And we didn't have time uh, to be able to get to the Lord's Supper. But I want you to understand something. For us here at Celebration, the Lord's Supper is not something we merely add on or attach to the end of the the service. It's not something that we just take lightly. We believe it's a true act of worship to God. When the body comes together and then we focus on the key thing that brings us together, and that is the crucifixion and the death, the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we are going to take of it. But you know what? We've got all this time to kill before we take of it. So why not jump into the word of God for just a small period of time? And and that's why we're going to be looking at James chapter 1 and verse 1. So what I want to do today is I want to give you some background to the book. And remember what it is. Everything that I say is very important. For you to understand the rest of of the book. We're going to look at two things. One is we're going to discuss a little bit the author. And then we're going to talk about the audience to whom the author was writing to. So if you will, this is going to help us to be able to navigate in the weeks to come. We'll probably take 18 weeks to get through the book of James. Right? Someone say good? All right. Well, that's good. Wow, I'm not used to such positivity, but I'll take it. Thank you so much. All right, good. You know how most people respond, 18 weeks. And I'm like, what are you, doing something? You got plans? You can't be here? What's going on? So it's probably going to take 18 weeks to navigate through it. We'll just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, like we normally do through these series, and see what it is that God has for us. Amen? And so today, you're on the ground floor to find out the background information. Let me give you a little bit of that right now. Let's talk about the author just for a moment. Notice in verse 1, the Bible says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are several James that are mentioned in the New Testament, but only one that really fits the criteria of an author of a New Testament book. And that is James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. I want to emphasize the word half-brother of of Jesus Christ, because that really makes all the difference in the world. It is a traditional teaching by the Roman Catholic Church that Mary only had one child, and that was Jesus, and that she didn't have any more. But if you just pay attention to the Bible and read through it and actually study it, you find out that the Bible says he did have half-brothers and half-sisters. In in matter of fact, in Matthew 13, 55, and Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, we see there listed his half-brothers, which include James, which would have been the oldest, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and then also his half-sisters, but they're not individually listed within the scriptures. Now, understand the significance of this just for a moment. He does have half-brothers and sisters. They share the same mom, different dad. And again, that makes all the difference. Why is that theologically significant? Because the Bible teaches us that the sin nature was passed down through Adam. 
That is man. The man in the relationship passes down his sin nature to the children. Ladies, doesn't that make a lot of sense, right? You see your children, they're misbehaving, they seem sinful. You look at them and say, they got that from you. All right? All right? Theologically, that's actually correct. And so, with Jesus not being born of a man, but rather being born of the Holy Spirit, conceiving and do a supernatural miracle of of conceiving Jesus in the womb of Mary, he's able to be fully God, unstained with sin, without his sin nature, and yet at the same time identify with man by being fully man. Does that make sense? So, that is why when Jesus dies on the cross later, he's able to die for other people's sin... And not his own. Why? He has none. He wasn't born with a sin nature, but the rest of us were. Amen? All right? The rest of us were born in sin. The reason that we sin is because we at heart are sinners. It's in our DNA. Well, Jesus is able not to sin partly because he was born without a sin nature. And so as we look through the scriptures and we, and we begin to read through, we find out that James grew up. Uh, with Jesus. I mean, what a pretty cool thing. I don't know what your brothers were like, but I'm sure they weren't like Jesus, right? Um, Can you imagine, first of all, growing up with Jesus? You're like, dude, just do it. Just do it, man. Nobody's looking. Just do it. No, I can't. Just do it, man. You're driving me nuts. Oh, you think you're so true. You think, what do you think? You're God's gift? Well, matter of fact, yes, I, I do. I I'm Emmanuel, God with us. And so, uh, yes, I do. And so he was able to, you know, he, he, he slept in the, probably in the same bed as a child with Jesus. They ate together. They played together. They got injured together. They played, maybe played pranks, if that's not a sin, I guess, uh, together. He saw Jesus grow up. He saw his impeccable character. He saw that he was never failing in, in so many ways. He even saw his public ministry. Uh, he saw his, uh, his ministry to the people. He also saw some of those miracles as well. But what's interesting is through all of this, John 7, 5 tells us that for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So the majority of James' life and Jesus' life, actually through his whole earthly life, James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, what we find is not only did they not believe, but in other, some of the other passages of Scripture, we find out that they thought he was kind of crazy. On several occasions through the Gospels, we find out that when he's preaching and teaching, it says that they came to try to lay hands on him to take him home because they thought he had gone cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. They thought he was crazy. So they didn't believe all this, but they didn't believe he was the Messiah until something unique happened in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 7. There the Bible says that Jesus Christ supernaturally appeared to him. Now, this was after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It was during the time of 40 days after his resurrection that Jesus appeared to a number of over 500 different witnesses. And one of those witnesses was James. And so when he appears to James, that's where James ultimately comes to faith in Christ. Now, stop and think about the spiritual privilege that James had, the unique privilege that he and his family had That you and I never have. In fact, he got to live in the same house with Jesus, see him grow up, have conversations, see his miracles, see his teachings. But here's what I want you to understand. Even though he knew a bunch about Jesus, he still didn't know Jesus. There's a difference between those two things. And there's no way for me really to be able to get inside your head and your heart to let you know how different those two things are. There are people in our culture, in our church, in our community, everywhere around us that are just like James. 
They know everything there is to know about Jesus. They know the gospel. They know his birth. They understand even many of the scriptures. But the truth is they certainly and completely do not truly know Jesus. And the county is filled with them. Churches are filled with them. And look, it's not that we're trying to judge the intent of the heart of somebody else and say you're saved and you're not. But the truth is when you see somebody that shows absolutely no evidence whatsoever that they love Jesus, care for Jesus, or want to live for Jesus, the Bible says that by their fruit, they're demonstrating that their profession in Jesus, in their profession in Jesus Christ is false. They claim to be a believer of Jesus Christ, but there's no evidence of any transformation, any evidence that the Holy Spirit resides within them, any evidence that God gave them a new heart and a new spirit and made him walk in, 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 in the statutes of God. None of that is ultimately there. And here's what I want you to understand. The frustrating part about that, and haven't you been frustrated before with that? You're sharing the gospel with somebody, and they sit there and go, man, I know all that. I accepted Jesus and the God size hold my heart when I was a little kid. I'm good. I'm good. Just go away. And you want to somehow stir within them this idea of brother, sister, look, I know intellectually you know all this, but it has never changed you. And if you've ever gone through that, if that's your testimony, how many would agree there's a huge difference between the two? I guarantee that there would be people who would come today and give this kind of, this kind of uh, uh, testimony. Hey, man, yeah, I was saved. I asked Jesus, well, I asked Jesus into my heart when I was a little kid. I walked out. I did it all. And I begin to follow Jesus. And I begin to do everything as a good boy or a good girl should do. But then one day, God saved me. Everything changed, man. I'm just telling you, everything changed. I had hearts and desire for things that I had never had before. I know that God saved me. And what's so frustrating is you can't even fully explain it. And then you try to explain it to other people and they're like, okay, well, that's really nice. You were probably already saved, but you probably just got more of Jesus. And you're like, no, I'm telling you, I was blind, but now I see. And you can't get it unless you get it. Let me, su- let me suggest something. As we're walking through this book, I pray that that happens. I pray that when we're walking through this book, that there will be some of you, and I love you dearly, who are absolutely 100% confident that you are right with God, but yet you have not taken an honest look at the fruit of your life and what the Bible says that true salvation is. And all of a sudden, God will shake you for the first time and bring you to a reality that if you were to die, you were to perish because you were truly never in the faith. My desire is not to disturb or to cause anybody to question their faith that is truly born again. That's not the desire. And that wouldn't be James' desire either. But what we do hope is, is that none of us after the end of the series will be like James. We're able to come and to be able to do all this and see all this and be so close to the heat of the spirit and the truth of the gospel, but yet leave believing we were in the faith when truly we were not. I pray that God will work in that way. You know, it's interesting because everything ultimately does change after Jesus appears to him. Acts one thirteen, we see that there was a group of disciples, Jesus' disciples, and a group of about 120 that gathered together in Jerusalem in the upper room. And as they're in that upper room, the Holy Spirit comes down. Do you remember this? Tongues of fire begin to dance all over the place. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They become these powerful witnesses. What we find is that James was there at that time, and the whole trajectory of his life and everything in it completely changes. 
He begins to become a disciple, a true disciple of Jesus Christ, following him and living for him. In fact, what we find is he was a great influence in the early church. He was the, one of the greatest leaders in the birth and the early aspect and uh, the early formative years of a church. We find out that he was the pastor uh, there at the Jerusalem church. In Acts 15, we find out that he was actually the chairman of the Jerusalem council. And that was significant. Let me just tell you why that's so significant. It's significant because it shows that he truly believes that a person is saved by grace through faith alone and not through works. Why? Because at the Jerusalem council, the argument was and the question was, these Gentiles, when they come to faith in Jesus, do they have to convert to Judaism and do everything that the law of Moses tells them to do in order to be saved? And and across the board, with him following, with James following, the chairman says, no, not at all. One is saved by grace through faith alone. Do you see that? So even though sometimes it may say, is he, is he saying that we have to, we're saved by works? He's not saying that. He's saying the works come as an outward living of the true faith that's inside of us. And so what we find is uh, that, that later in his life, and according to church history, he was a man known for sincere faith in Christ. Very, very sincere. In fact, his nickname came to be known as James the Just. Listen to the testimony of one man by the name this is a hard name, uh, but one, um, that, that one particular man who saw him, his name is Hegesippus, and it was recorded by Eusebius. And this is what he says about James. He said, James used to enter alone in the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like camels because of a constant worship of God, kneeling and asking forgiveness for the people. So from his excessive righteousness, he was called the just. Here was a guy that he was a pastor, but he didn't just put on an air of spirituality because he was a pastor and had to lead other people and he made a paycheck. He was the real deal, this guy. I mean, have you seen a camel's knees? They are disgusting. Uh, do you understand? They are worn down. They are like leather. There are large calluses. And here's James' old camel knees. Why is he always on his knee? Because of a sincere worship to God. The calling out for God's forgiveness of his own heart. The calling out for God to be able to save and to forgive the sins of those who are around him. Man, he is the real deal. He's sincere in, in, in his faith. It, but did you, did you notice this? It's interesting. He introduces himself. And he could have given any kind of myriad of accolades and impressive accolades to introduce himself, right? I mean, he's James. Hey, James, the brother of Jesus. Bam. All right, just dropped it on him, right? Or James, the son of Mary, still pretty impressive. James, the, fast, the pastor of First Baptist Jerusalem. That's right, how are you? James, the chairman of the Jerusalem Council. Do you remember the theological truths? Well, I was behind all that. I wrote that, yes. That's me, James. He could have done all these things. But do you know how he introduces himself? Did you notice that James, what? The servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. that. That word servant there, there's a lot of different words for servant and slave in the New Testament. One of them is doulos. And what I love about this is it's not a slave that is made a slave. It is a slave that is born a slave. It's somebody who has no rights unto themselves and doesn't claim any rights, but rather is fully and completely dependent upon his master. Here's what he's saying. Theologically, this is beautiful. He says, you know what? When you are lost, listen to me, apart from Christ... You are a slave to sin and death. You cannot help but to sin. You cannot help but to be disobedient to God. And you are a slave to sin, and therefore the consequence is a slave to death. 
But Jesus comes and through his shed blood, listen to me, through his shed blood, he frees you. He pays the ransom for you. You're set free. But guess what? We now become slaves to Christ. But it's because we are born again unto slaves of Christ, fully and completely trusting him for all things. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Now, what I love about him is this. What I love is he's the type of guy that just flat out says, hey, you want to know about me? Only one thing you need to know. I'm a servant and slave of Jesus Christ. That's what I want you to know. That's pretty awesome. The reason is because it reminds me a lot of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. You remember Paul, he begins to list this long, long laundry list of, of, of uh, impressive accomplishments. That he was a Jew, he circumcised on such and such a day. He was, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was all of these things. And then this is what he says at the end of it. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. He says, all those things that you might think that are so impressive, all the accomplishments in my life. Let me tell you something. Later, he goes on and he says, they are dung to me compared to the wonderful ability and knowledge of me knowing Jesus Christ. You want to know who I am, James says? You want to know what I'm about? I'm about Jesus and serving him. That's outstanding. That's outstanding. This is the man who's writing this particular letter. Now, let me ask you the question. Are you content? Are you content in your life? Are you content in your marriage? Are you content with your job? Are you content with your singleness? Are you content with work and how much money is in the bank? And are you content with, with your life and your, your, your physical prowess and, and your health? Are you content with all of these things? Say, how can we? They're so, they're so bad. There's so many difficulties. There's so much hardship. Even with my work, so much hardship. James sits there and says, you know what? All of it to me really doesn't matter and it's not really important. Because all of it just completely fades away in the privilege of knowing Jesus Christ. I've told you guys this before. One of the most depressing places for me to be as a pastor is, that, is to do a funeral. So I'm telling you, you better live for Jesus so it's not so depressing for me to do your funeral. Do you understand that? All right? Because I don't want to get up there and try to find some words to say, well, you know, he had a head. You know, uh, make it easy for me. All right? And so not that I'm rejoicing over your death, but you understand what I'm saying. But the reason that it's so depressing is because what is said, I don't know if you guys get this, Right? We go to a funeral, and then there is somebody who's going to get up, and they're going to do the eulogy. And then they're going to do the obituary. And, oh, how depressing the obituary is. Are you guys with me on this? You guys are like, what's an obituary? All right, it's this little letter they put in the paper, and they basically, it sounds something like this. Well, John was born here at this time with these parents. He grew up there. He played this. He was a captain of that. He accomplished this other thing. He really liked fishing, hunting, and hanging out with his dog, Penelope. Uh, he, he really had a great sense of humor and loved to joke, but don't turn, don't turn on him or cross him. But above all else, he loved shellfish. Every Friday night, he loved to drive the whole family down to Uncle Sean's shrimp shack and eat a whole boatload of shrimp. And today, I just got to think he's up at that great crystal sea, just scooping out the shrimp and eating all that he can. Amen? And they get done with that, and you're just sitting there going, dude, the whole life, and that's it? Really? Can, could, could we just add something to that? I mean, how great would it be 
If after, at least, okay, put all that shrimp, great, all that. But at least to say, but he considered everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Jesus is Lord. I haven't told my wife this, but if I die before I get to tell her this, make sure you tell her. Would you pass that on for me? Um, is, is on my tombstone. Uh, this is what I want to write on my tombstone. I, I finally figured it out. Look, I know you're supposed to be like 60 before you begin to do this. But, you know, you know I don't know. I pastor. I don't know how long this life's going to live. All right. So 40 years old, the tombstone. Here's what I wanted to say. I, I wanted to say, Mike, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in little captions, say, enough said. That's it. And you sit there and, and you say, well, what about you being a daddy, a good daddy? Well, I'm not that great of a daddy, to be honest with you. Well, what about being a great husband? Oh, I would love for you to put that in. But the truth is, I'm probably not that great of a husband either. Oh, a great pastor. I know you guys know. I'm not a great pastor, right? So I ain't telling you nothing, right? But here's what I would love. All that is taken care of with just the words, Mike, a servant of God and of Jesus Christ. Everything else takes care of itself. Let me ask you, is Jesus, is Jesus enough for you? See, here's what's amazing to me about, uh, about this man is that he's the only one. You know that song we sing, It Is Enough to Be Loved by Jesus? You know that song? We, we sing that song. At least some of us do. Some of us just watch the words. But anyway, we sing that song. Well, James is actually a guy who can sing that with a clear conscience. It is enough for him to be loved by Jesus. Look, I know that you are racked with junk today. I know that you've got all kinds of different stuff going on. But I'm going to call you to faith and call you through the series of this teaching that you will see Christ as you have never seen him before so that we can sing that song. It is enough to be loved by him. That's the author. The Bible says that he eventually ended up dying in 62 AD. Here's how he dies. He, this is through church history, not through the word of God, but through church history, uh, we find that he's taken to a pinnacle of the temple. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes basically say, recant or we're going to throw you off. And he says, okay, he goes, I'll speak to the people. And he goes, okay, go ahead and recant and say that you don't believe any of this mess about Jesus. He gets up and says, well, they said, they told me to recant, but how can I recant? I can't. Jesus is the only one with the words of salvation. Repent and follow him. They didn't like that very much. They pushed him off of the Temple Mount. He falls down in the valley below, but amazingly, he doesn't die. He begins to move and he begins to crawl and he's bloodied all over the place. And as he begins to try to crawl back to the temple, what does he do? He's being beaten then by the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And finally, somebody takes a hammer and takes a blow to his head and he dies. But you know, this isn't James' word, but James lived by the same philosophy of Paul is to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I live, it's all about Christ. If I die, it's all about Christ. I get to reap the reward of what it is that I live this life for. And my prayer, listen, my prayer as your pastor is that we are there. Can I, can, I, can I just be completely honest with you straight up? I've tried to be honest with you, by the way. I haven't been lying to you up to this point. But let me just say this. I want Jesus to be enough. I so desperately want him to be my all in all. To have him as my all in all and for him to be nothing else. I'm just not there yet. I'm just not there yet. 
I think if push comes to shove, he is. But there's too much fighting in the affections of my heart over him. And there are too many times that I choose it over him. Anybody with me? That our prayer may be, God, help us so that we can sing with full confidence. It is enough to be loved by Jesus, as I think that James would be able to do. Well, I need to speak quicker because we've got so much to do. But here's the shorter half of this. I want to talk to you just about the audience that James is writing to. Notice, if you will, here it says the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Let me break it down very quickly because we're running out of time. The 12 tribes, anytime that's used in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, it's really describing all of the nation of Israel. All the nation of Israel. And so what he's doing is it lets us know immediately he's not talking to Gentiles or to Romans. He's talking to the Jews. That's his major audience. But that's a big audience. So what he does is he gives us a clue, two clues, that actually kind of whittle that down into a smaller group of Jews. Notice he adds those words. He says, in the dispersion. Now, the word dispersion, uh, diaspora, is really the, 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 the Greek word. And basically what it means literally is to be scattered. And it's a word in the Old Testament that is used by God to describe the scattering of God's people when they're disobedient to God. When they're disobedient, they refuse to repent, they refuse to submit to him. God scatters them. Why? Because he's getting them out of the land, which is their inheritance. And as, as dis, in disciplining them, he sends them out of the land because the land shows a place that they would dwell with God. So he casts them out. Well, we see two major examples in the Old Testament. One occurs in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians take over the northern tribe of Israel, take them away and disperse them amongst all the other countries. Then in 586 B.C., we see the same thing happen with the Babylonians. They come into the southern kingdom of Judah, and they ransack it, and they take them, and they disperse them all over the area of, of the Mediterranean and parts of Europe and also in Asia Minor. Now, those are two of the dispersions he could have been speaking of, but in context, we understand that's not what he was talking about. Instead, he was talking about one that had just previously happened. We read about it in the book of Acts. We read it there in the book of Acts where the people were dispersed because there was a great violence that rose up in persecution that rose up against the Christians uh, stemming from the death and the martyrdom of Stephen. Do you remember that? Paul, Saul was there at the, he, and they laid the, the, the cloaks at his feet and they stoned Stephen. Well, after that, it infuriated the religious leaders and they went on to, to, to kill and to imprison other believers. Well, what are you going to do when that happens? Well, those believers in Jerusalem, now catch this. The majority of believers in Jerusalem were a part of James' church. He was their pastor. So they hightail and they get out. He stays behind. He stays behind during this time that they go out. Now, here's the real difficulty. Yes, they're, leaving, they're going to a foreign land. Yes, they're away from their home, their loved ones, their families, their friends. They're without jobs. They are suffering. Financially, they're suffering. Physically, they are suffering. But here's what's worse. Even when they go to those other places, the Jews that were already there from those dispersions that came from years and years and years before that, they rejected them, and they wouldn't receive them. And what they did is, is they were basically by themselves. So they were being abused by the Gentiles in this Asia Minor region. They had nobody to help them, nobody to support them, nobody to be able to bail them out in trouble. They were all alone, and they're beginning to flounder. Have you noticed that when really, really difficult times come, we begin to flounder? We begin to wonder if God cares. We begin to wonder, is all of this worth it? We begin to wonder, are we doing something wrong? 
They're believing the same thing. And so what Jesus wants them to do is he wants to encourage them on to faith. It's really what this book is about. It's about faith. See, we have a danger. uh, There's a very dangerous temptation for us. Here's what sometimes professing believers will do. Real difficulties come their way. Real heartache come their way. And sometimes what the professing believer will do is they'll say, okay, we're in some difficult times, hardship. And instead of coming closer to God, they retreat from God. You with me? Instead of walking forward to him, they begin to retreat. And they begin to retreat by basically saying, hey, listen, we're in a lot of big trouble right now. We've got to fix this. And the only way to fix this is to kind of jettison our religion and begin to work this out ourselves. I've seen this with people. They have financial problems. Hey, we, we can't be a part of the church. We can't do this stuff. We just got to figure this out ourselves. Hey, we got marriage problems. And, and, and one of the ways you know is they begin to do what? They begin to fall out of church. Hey, we've got relational problems or this problem. They're like, hey, listen, we're going to come back to the faith in a little bit, but we've got to deal with this. What Paul is saying is if true faith doesn't help you in the midst of the worst of the worst, then it's not true faith. If your so-called faith only helps you when everything seems to be perfect and everything seems to be great, then that's not saving faith at all. The great thing about faith in Jesus Christ is here it is, and this is what he's going to say. It works. It works. It works in the worst of the worst. It works in the most difficult times inside your life. Faith in Christ sustains us and helps us. And so what James is ultimately going to do is he's going to encourage them Don't lose the faith. Instead, have faith all the more. And then he gives some instructions of what faith looks like in the midst of difficulties. He's going to show us what that's like. You know, one of my heroes of the faith was Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor uh, is interesting. He did a mission to inland China. And as he's, some of you probably heard this illustration before, but it just always burns in my heart. As he's traveling down a river and the guide boats got there and they got the sails out and everything, uh, the captain comes down into the ship where he's studying and praying. And he says, hey, listen, he goes, uh, you need to pray to your God. He says, because this ship, there's no wind and our ship is beginning to be taken into an island that is well known for cannibals. And so some of the different sayings, and I don't know how much they embellish this, but they said that they could hear the knives of the headhunters getting ready for dinner as they begin, as that boat began to get closer and closer to that island. I don't know how true that is, but it makes for a great illustration, doesn't it? The rest is true. He comes to him and he says, listen, we, you need to pray to God that he'll send wind so that he'll save us away from this particular area. And Hudson Taylor said to him, he says, I will, but under one condition. And the man said, What? And he goes, he goes, you must put up the sails now that there is no wind. And he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to look like an idiot captain. Captain doesn't put up the sails when there's no wind. He only puts up the sails when there's wind. He says, then I, don't, I won't pray. And he says, there, says, okay, I'll put up the sails. So he goes and he puts up the sails. A couple minutes later, he comes back and he goes, he says, Hudson, are you, are you praying? And he goes, yes. He goes, well, then stop praying. He goes, there's so much wind that it's beginning to tear the ship apart. And so the idea, here, here's the idea. The idea is, in the midst of difficulties, it's not time to put down the f- sails of faith. It's to put up the sails of faith. It's to believe in God more than ever before. That's what true saving faith is. No matter how ugly, no matter how dirty, no matter how problematic, we have faith in Christ. But here's what I want you to understand. The faith is not your mere feeling. 
It's the faith that is lived out in obedience to do what God has called us to do in the midst of those difficulties. That's true saving faith. So before we take the Lord's Supper, just very quickly, let's just take some time to be able to look in our hearts. My prayer for this series is that some of you, and only God can do it, will show you in your heart of hearts that maybe some of you have never been truly born again. I don't want anybody who's truly born again questioning that. But I do for those who are overly confident and show no true demonstration of repentance and salvation, that God would shake them up. It's also for you and I to dig down deep and sit there and say, God, where else am I going to go? You're the only one who has eternal life. I'm going to live for you and I'm going to live you fully. God, I want to be like James. I want to be able to say it is enough to be loved by Jesus no matter what else happens. God, I want to pursue you and I want to obey you. And then what I want us to do is to live in the obedience that this book teaches us of how to live that faith out. Right now, my sister, she's going to come and she's going to begin playing. And it's a time to respond. One is, I'm going to be down here. And if you want to know more about Jesus, I'm here. I I want to tell you more about him. I want to tell you more about what it means to be saved and to walk with him. We'll counsel with you and talk with you. But there are some of you here as well that you you would probably just agree that right now, in your difficulty, you're probably backing up from the faith a little bit more than just sitting there and go, God, I need to be all the more faithful. We just need to pray at this particular time in your hearts, in your heart of hearts. Would you at the same time just say, God, give me the faith. Give me the faith. Let's stand. We're going to pray. And you respond. Dear Jesus, we love you. We praise you. God, I pray that people will even come forward and pray down at this altar and feel open as an encouragement to others. Just, just to say, God, I don't have it all together. But God, would you, would you stir me? Would you stir my heart? God, would you give me that type of faith? God, any of those who are not saved, would you save them today? We love in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you respond? It's your bed, strong or lay. Come receive, amazing.